Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. Last Sunday, the federal government announced their Return to Sport Toolkit, a roadmap for the glorious return of community and professional sport. But it is not without its catches. Gone are handshakes, high-fives, oranges at half-time and the familiar chanting wall of parents that populate the members' end of every suburban park. It's now one parent per kid. Clubs at all levels will now require a COVID safety coordinator as well, which seems like a much harder task than running the barbecue. In the professional field, the Prime Minister's press conference opened the turnstiles for outdoor gatherings at places like stadiums that have less than 40,000 seats from July 1st, but they can only run at 25% capacity. I'll let you do the maths. Even with the return to smaller stadiums for a select few passionate supporters, the majority of sports consumption will take place digitally or via the many broadcast deals etched out over the last few weeks across Australia's major codes. The NRL has renegotiated the terms of its $1.8 billion broadcast deal with Fox Sports and Nine. Rugby Australia has reached a deal with Fox Sports to broadcast the new look Super Rugby season from July 3rd. The AFL have signed on with Fox Sports and Channel 7 until 2024. And the A-League is due to return July 16th with the season ending in August of this year. And with all the talk of broadcast deals, bargains and steals, the future of elite women's sport is at a fascinating crossroads. With Covid's cleaning of the slate and a potential women's football World Cup on the horizon, it's an interesting time to be in the space. Now, joining us to discuss the future of sport in Australia is today's panel. Dr David Bond is the course director for the Master of Business Analytics at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School. Jen Simmons is the Deputy Chair of Women's Sport Australia and John Didalitza is the Chief Executive of Professional Footballers Australia. John, we'll start the discussion with you. Football Federation Australia on Sunday announced an extension of the A-League season until the 31st of August 2020 has been finalised following extensive discussions with the A-League clubs and yourself at Professional Footballers Australia. Now, there have been reports that Fox Sports, the current A-League broadcast partner, could be looking to exit their $56 million a year broadcast deal with three years still left. Now, it's a fascinating place to start our discussion. How important is a broadcast deal for professional sports at a time when audiences are effectively shut out from attending games in person? Yeah, I think there'll always be ongoing conjecture about what the future of the broadcast deal is. All we know is that once the game restarts, in July, the agreements with Fox shouldn't be impacted in any way. So clearly there's a little bit of work that FFA need to do with Fox between now and then to resolve that. Um, but there's no doubt that something like COVID challenges sport two ways. It challenges it directly in that some of its direct uh, revenue streams are put under extreme stress, i.e. the broadcast deal that you just described. But secondly, there's also this indirect challenge, which is fans who mightn't have as much money to invest in the sport for the long-term corporate partners who might be themselves experiencing some downturns and might be less likely to invest in sport. Those things coalesce to make it very fragile. And as we 
entered negotiations, we were entirely aware of how fragile our ecosystem was, how fragile our commercial model was, and we were extraordinarily sensitive to that. And as a consequence of that, the players certainly took significant reductions in salary to ensure the season can be completed. And what that will do, it's allowed the league to continue. It's allowed the A-League to be preserved. We hope then that kickstarts the preservation of the W League and more broadly keeps, you know, hundreds of Australian players employed for the immediate and, and hopefully uh, long term. It was a huge step for the players to make at a really fragile time. They did that effectively. And I think now the focus switches to FFA's ability to shore up their media partnerships to ensure that we do have a runway to reboot the league. And not just the A-League, because this will have a trickle effect or a, certainly a chain reaction into what the W-League looks like next season as well and what our national team programs look like. So it's an incredibly complex, um, cascading series of agreements that need to be made all in you know, what is really uncertain, a period of great uncertainty. What's the impact been on the players? Yeah, I think with, I mean, the first, first part of the question was the stand-downs of the players, and that's something that really impacted on players significantly was and not just players but people, employees across Australia, Qantas and Virgin and other industries that have been acutely hit the same way sport has. We had a situation where, where players have been effectively stood down in some instances on purely JobKeeper, in some instances no pay at all if they were a foreign player for the you know, best part of two months. So that's been an incredibly hard, challenging period for players. And Dr Bond, do you have anything to add to that? Broadcast deals and the revenue that that come from those four major codes is is a huge part of what goes on. Just to give you a sense of it, for the NRL in 2019, they had about $555 million of revenue, of which nearly 60% of that was from broadcast. Now, one thing that's just really clear with this, though, is when we talk about the NRL, we're talking about the NRL, not the clubs themselves. So the clubs themselves will also have various revenue streams. For the AFL, about 75% of their revenue is going to be coming from broadcast. And again, that's just the, the league itself, not the various clubs. And so using a club like Collingwood, roughly 15% of their revenue is from the AFL. And a large part of that is from the broadcast. The rest of that is going to be, you know, what they get from their members, people turning up to functions, turning up to games and whatnot. But it's, you know, roughly speaking, it's probably about 30% for each of the codes there or thereabouts. The demographics for viewership are also changing as well. And on June 6th, Roy Morgan released a new report showing NRL television viewers under the age of 34, which is obviously a very keen market for viewership. They've dropped by 10% in the past four years. But at the same time, last year's free-to-air viewership data showed that the highest rating program across the board last year for free-to-air television was the first State of Origin match. There's a sign that on one hand, you've got State of Origin bringing in 3.2 million viewers in an evening, but at the same time, you have viewerships across a very important demographic dropping. So are major sports in a position to bargain during a broadcast deal and to actually take the broadcasters to the table and maybe look for terms that are a bit more favourable for themselves? Or are they still very much at the mercy of the broadcasters? Because as you said, it's such a huge source of revenue for them. Oh, look, I mean, both sides would have, you know, would obviously have a, a role to play in that negotiation. If you look at them, yeah, on one hand and looking at rugby, rugby Australia is obviously there's been a lot of conversation over the last few months about 
their broadcast deal and, and their the difficulty they've had in securing one. Now, the code itself has been going through some problematic times over the last little while, and I don't think anyone would say otherwise. Um, when you look at codes like the NRL and AFL, obviously, you know, they are having a bit of a better run at run of things. So they bring eyeballs, they bring interest, you know, and that's certainly something that they would also point to. It's not all in the whip hand of the broadcasters. Though. I mean, they're coming under increasing pressure in terms of, you know, people not watching free to air necessarily. Um, the pay TV channels, people are moving away from that kind of that older model of, you know, you lock in for 90 bucks a month, hundred bucks a month, hard to get out of the setup costs to, you know, those streaming services where it's you know 10 15 dollars a month and you can kind of dip in dip out as you so choose so i think both sides have positives going for them both sides have negatives going for them and it just i suppose so happens that who who is at the negotiating table um you know personalities often will play a role in that as well and that raises a lot of very interesting questions about those broadcast deals because they become so much more important without live audiences. Now, a, a group of Socceroos greats have recently proposed to the FFA that they launch their own independent streaming service for football content, which would cut Fox Sports out of the deal. It obviously comes at a time when the FFA and Foxtel are involved in that very bitter standoff over a reduced offer, which we've alluded to earlier in the discussion. But does that possibly represent the future of sports broadcasting directly streaming to the audience do you think that there's some viability to that idea i think football needs to decide exactly how it wants to position itself i think one one area where football is quite different to other mainstream sports in australia is that it has a far more i suppose decentralized area of focus so most fans who follow the afl and, and the nrl they engage with the premium elite product if you like whereas in football people have a whole multitude of touch points with the sport. So you could be a, an avid A-League fan but not have any connection to a community club. Uh, you could also be totally invested in your grassroots community organisation but have no interest in what's happening at an A-League level. So we have this really disparate audience and a disparate audience can lend itself to a platform that can host a whole range of different games so that different people can you know, drop in and out of whatever they wish to watch. And if you, you augment that with some high-profile international rights, national team games, community football, I think it could make a compelling proposition. But certainly in the short term, I think the number one priority is to determine what the future is with Fox. There's still three years remaining on that deal. It's a, a deal that underpins the financial future of the sport. So it's critical at this time that that agreement is allowed to be, I suppose, tested or discussed to the extent possible. And then we can concern ourselves with what alternate plans might look like if both parties don't see a future in the sport. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing streaming becoming increasingly common i mean you turn back five years ago you know what the penetration of your netflix and your stands i mean ko i don't think even existed back then we are becoming so much more used to accessing stuff via stream i think you know the last stats that i saw there was something like 12 million people in australia had access to netflix 3 million people had access to stan you know it's just something we're used to like i watch a lot of things now on an ipad or on a computer like I it's actually quite rare to turn the tv on you're seeing this sort of owning almost owning of that whole process happening a little bit more in the us um so some of the major sporting codes over there are starting to take a little bit more ownership of this are the economies here for all the codes to be able to do that in australia and is there the interest you know you'd probably say if you're a betting man which um, i'm not but you know the afl would have to be right up there the nrl would have to be right up there with the resources to be able to 
put something together which works well and you know own their content and build around that if that's coming through sort of an over-the-top streaming service type situation you know, i mean you could quite well see that being the future of the way things go in april nine accused the nrl of having a bloated head office with accounts showing that the league was spending almost $500,000 a day on administration costs alone. So, Dr Bond, at a glance, what's the financial state of the major sporting codes? The comments that were made about the NRL, again, I would I would hazard that those are more tactical in nature. It's on record through their financials as to, you know, the growth in terms of expenditure line items, and those are fairly broad expenditure um expenditure groups but are they doing the things that they want them to do so if you're spending on development offices and they have seen an increase in the spend on development that could well be a good thing for them and be positive down the line so it's kind of a difficult one even having a look at the numbers to say whether or not those that spend should have happened one thing to bear in mind when you're seeing commentary being made by media about ongoing deals is that no one is unbiased in in their comments there you need to take with somewhat of a, a grain of salt the the things that have been said a lot of it ends up being fairly tactical in nature and you've seen that in in previous deals where they you know they said they wouldn't necessarily do one and it ends up working itself out in terms of the level of bloat or non-bloat or you know expenditure have there been general increases generally speaking within sporting codes yeah i mean i can think you can pretty unequivocally say that yes there has been an increase in expense i think more the question is whether or not you believe that those expenditures are legitimate in the sense of are they helping the game or the code or the organization itself get to where it needs to be that's a much harder thing from the outside to be making a call on it's a it is very difficult to say has the level of expenditure gone up though it has but what you generally see in sporting organizations is they don't have owners per se so we're not talking about organizations which are privately owned and who do have owners a lot of you know say rugby australia doesn't you know have an ownership structure so they don't they're not trying to make profits to then pay dividends to someone so they don't necessarily need to earn a profit so they can actually i suppose spend the money that they've earned to help grow the game. Now, Jen, as the major codes get back onto the field, it doesn't take a sports scientist to notice that the women's game has not been as quick to restart. So are you at all concerned that much of the momentum behind particularly professional women's sports in Australia could be lost during the COVID-19 lockdown? Well, I really hope not. We've been doing a lot of work at Women's Sport Australia to really help perpetuate that movement that's happened in over the last decade for women's sport within Australia. And it really has been some great forward momentum with the sort of formation of competitions like the AFLW, the NRLW, women's sort of super rugby. It really given a lot of women opportunities to play sports more so than your sort of netball and your hockey that have been providing opportunities for women for years. So we're really hoping that this work that we put in to really elevate women's sport to the status of men's sport um, is not going to be lost because of this break during COVID-19. Mm. It's definitely apparent that there's been a lot of work done to get the male competitions back up and running and that's where the big broadcast dollars are and the sponsorships and that is definitely understood that they needed to sort of resume for a lot of people's livelihoods because of the historical connection that they've had to our society. But we just don't want everyone to forget about the women's leagues and the women's competitions, which we've worked so hard to get to a great level and we just want to see them come back. 
How do you see the roadmap forward for women's sport, obviously taking into consideration that there isn't as much funds as there were prior, and even speaking then, the funding for women's sport was far less than men's, but how do you see the roadmap out for women's sports to at least get back to a point where there's some continuity for that momentum that you were talking about? Yeah, well, I think it's really something that we're really hoping that this time actually allows sport to resume on an equal footing base as opposed to that historical difference of the men's sport having this much and the women's sport getting the dregs sort of left after over afterwards. We're really hoping that sports can now approach this post-COVID period in really having that whole of sport approach and looking for competitions for the men's league, for the women's league, for the all abilities, for all different sort of communities to really have that equality throughout sport. This is really what we'd like to see happen, but whether it actually will happen, I think it'll be really interesting. The men's sort of leagues for AFL and NRL are back up running and now they're sort of looking to the women's sports and sort of trying to plot out how those competitions are going to resume. And like, I think really what the big thing is, is that our society have started to see that women's sport is something that is available and people want to see it. And I think there will be a big public outcry if women's sport doesn't resume at the same rate as men's sport because it's something that the public want and that we love women's sport. If you look at the ICC T20 Women's World Cup final and that there were 86,000 people at the MCG, there is no shortage of people wanting to see women out there playing sport at the elite level. So we just need to be vocal about it and make sure that we're really putting it out there that we want to see these women back at the top of their game playing the sports that they love. Football is the most well-established of all the four major codes in the women's space. The W League, I believe, is in its 12th season at the moment. Last Thursday, FIFA confirmed that the Australia-New Zealand bid for the 2023 Women's World Cup had received the highest overall average assessment score, 4.1 out of 5, for the most commercially favourable proposition to host a World Cup, which clearly would be one of the front runners for qualification. So it's a huge boost to women's sport to potentially have a home World Cup in a sport uh, where there's obviously a very prominent market and Australia does well. So do you think that this could be a windfall for women's sport in a post-COVID recovery? Oh, 100%. I think we've all, all got our fingers and toes crossed that in 10 days that that announcement comes through that the Australian-New Zealand bid is granted the ability to host the 2023 Women's World Cup here. I just think seeing the momentum from the competition last year and it is that public reverence for the Matildas is just second to none that they would be one of the most sort of acknowledged and the best sort of role model groups, I suppose, out of our women's sporting teams up there with the Diamonds and sort of the Australian women's cricket team. So I think to be able to host a a World Cup here in Australia and with New Zealand would just be a phenomenal boost for women's sport within Australia and it would really sort of show the work that we've done throughout the sort of W League and the way that we've been able to cultivate this homegrown talent to go into the international competitions and play overseas and internationally represent Australia. So to be able to be successful in that bid I think would do amazing things for women's sport here in Australia and just really be a great thing for Australia. 
fundamental things for me with women's sports in terms of their commercialization is for a long period of time, it was what I'd call the steak knives. It was just thrown in at the end of a deal, just as a little bit of extra show bag filler that wasn't given its own standalone value. And I think we'll see that change over time and women's sport will be valued as a, an independent asset, something that has its own inherent value and values that may actually be different from what elite men's sport looks like. So I think it needs to be managed in a very bespoke way, both from a high performance perspective, but equally from a commercial perspective. Now, that doesn't mean you can't bundle those assets, but I certainly think that in terms of what the brand is and how it's propositioned, it needs to be very much a standalone pursuit that's coupled with a very powerful men's game. And I think that you know, once you bundle and couple those two products together, you can create a very powerful halo. In terms of the conditions within football, I think we can put our hands up and say that we are an exemplar for how it can be managed in Australian sport. I think through the national team collective bargaining agreement that we struck late last year that entrenched gender equality across our two teams, we achieved something in Australian team sport that no other sport has been able to achieve and certainly no other football code is likely to achieve. So we should be very proud of that. We should, it's the sort of thing that we can you know, take to the world in a large, to a large degree and demonstrate how progressive Australia is in this regard. In terms of the W League, we've also achieved parity between W League and A League players based on minimum standards. So the minimum wage for a player in a W League is effectively the same as the minimum wage for an A League player based on hours worked and length of the season. So that's, that was a great starting point. That doesn't mean it's the end. We need to not only invest in what the female players get in their hip pocket, but also ensure that they have the same sporting integrity within their league, which means playing more games, making sure they have access to the best quality resources, making sure they can um, you know, train as often and as hard as possible to become the best players they can be. So these areas around football performance, we need to keep working on, um, but we're getting there. I think football can be very proud of the work that it's doing to elevate women's football. And we're at the start of a very exciting cycle for them, particularly if the Women's World Cup bid is successful, uh, which we'll know later this month. And on a more local level, a study by the Australian Sports Foundation was provided to the ABC last Thursday, and it suggested that one in five community sports clubs could disappear within three months if the current COVID-19 restrictions remain in place. But nonetheless, the figures are still very stark. So the ASF uh, surveyed 2,700 clubs and found that there could be losses of up to $1.5 billion this year for community sport. Now, obviously, that does a lot for pathways for young female athletes, particularly those who are hoping to get into the professional leagues. So what's the outlook for the survival of grassroots women's sport? It's a really interesting one. Like community sport really is the heartland of where everything develops. Everyone starts off playing in those sort of community clubs and that's where your opportunities stem from. So it's so important that we all work together to get grassroots sport back up and running as soon as possible. I am based in Victoria and my day job when I'm not Deputy Chair of Women's Sport Australia is with Gymnastics Victoria. So we're working super hard at the moment to ensure that our 120 
27 gymnastics clubs across the state of Victoria can open from next Monday, which is when our ease restrictions are here in Victoria. And it's a huge task. It's a lot of education to the community about the new social distancing protocols. It's about the hygiene and cleaning processes that now need to be in place. Like I think that sports have taken a really diligent approach to understanding sort of what needs to be done in order for our competitions and our leagues and our clubs and all sports to start up again. The government have been providing fantastic guidelines and resources to assist with that. So I think as long as sports are able to adhere to those guidelines, that they should be able to resume their training and competition as soon as possible. And that shouldn't just be for the men's leagues and the boys' competitions. It should be for the girls as well. So all of those, um, all of the framework that was already in place pre-COVID for female leagues should just be adhered to um, post-COVID as well. And there's no reason that men should come back before women or anything like that. So that's what we've seen at the elite level, unfortunately, but hopefully in the community sense, everyone comes back to training at the same time, just adhering to those new processes and protocols. I think what we're seeing coming out of COVID is the importance of community and the importance of, you know, community communities are based around. So whether that be, you know, your local sporting club, whether it be the sort of people that inhabit it, whether it be other parts of the your community, which, you know, again, completely non-sporting, which we've not been able to enjoy properly for the last three months. We suddenly realize that these, these things are important. There is quite an interest in the tradition and the history of local sport. And we're seeing that through, whether it be in Sydney with uh, the Shoot Shield, obviously in, in the rugby, that, you know, there is, there is quite an interest in that particular game. And it brings something in that sort of tradition in history, which you know, seems to have been lost a little bit further up. Now that's not, it's not gone completely, but yeah, it seems to sort of not quite be where it needs to be at this point. And thus we conclude another episode of Think Business Futures. While a packed out MCG may be but a glimmer of hope for the future, the return to sport provides a unique opportunity to level the playing field for men and women's professional codes in terms of pay, viewership and status. For community sports, the verdict isn't as clear, but one thing is for sure. COVID-19 has fundamentally changed the rules of the game. Thank you to our guests, Dr. David Bond, Jen Simmons, and John Didlitzer. Make sure to catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to tell your teammates. I've been your host, Max Hillman. I'll see you again next week.